This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The sponsor of this episode is Every Plate. Experience full plates and fuller wallets with America's best value meal kit. Get meals you'll enjoy and your bank account will love delivered right to your door. Think of it this way. One meal is the same price as one cup of coffee. Every plate dinners are cheaper and alternative to takeout delivery. These recipes come together in about 30 minutes, definitely faster than a trip to the grocery store and starting a meal from scratch. Every plate is a lot more affordable than other meal kits. Even at regular price, every plate is up to 58% cheaper than other major meal kits out there. I save so much time with every plate. I don't have to worry about having enough time to read books or work on the podcast. Dinner is ready so quickly and it's so affordable. So if you'd like to learn more about Every Plate, visit everyplate.com. That's to learn more and sign up, visit everyplate.com. And thanks so much to Every Plate for sponsoring. And of course, all of their information will be linked in our show notes. Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. Today, I'm talking to Roshni Chakshi, the author of Arusha and the Tree of Wishes and the other Pendava books in that series, and they are all out from Rick Ryden Presents. For a full transcript of this conversation, check out the episode show notes, which are on readingwomenpodcast.com, and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss a single episode. So today I'm talking to one of my favorite middle grade authors, Roshni Chakshi. I love the Arusha series, and it's such a fun book, and I love how she incorporates the mythology of her heritage into those stories. Uh, but I originally read Roshni's books when she heard with her debut, The Star Touch Queen, and which is also based on a lot of mythology as well. And I loved it and its sequel, The Crown of Wishes. So when I heard that she was going to be Rick Riordan's first author for his new imprint, I was just over the moon, so excited because I knew she was perfect for it. And she is. She has such a unique way of storytelling and is so funny and the books are so charming. And when I am very stressed, these are the books that I reach for. And I have enjoyed reading her work for so long. And so I was so happy to be able to talk to her. Uh, what's more, she is based here in the South. And so I have met her, uh, I think, a couple times at different book festivals. But yeah, I am so excited to be able to talk to her today. So a little bit about Rashni before we jump into the interview. Uh, she is the author of several books, both middle grade and young adult. Uh, she has been nominated for the Locus and Nebula Awards and has frequently appeared on the best of year list from Barnes & Noble, Forbes, BuzzFeed, and more. Her New York Times bestselling series includes the Star Touched Queen duology, The Gilded Wolves, Arusha, and The End of Time, which is also optioned for film by Paramount Pictures. Very excited about that, obviously. So I had such fun talking to her in our conversation. So without further ado, here is my interview with Roshni Chakshi. 
Well, welcome to the podcast, Roshni. I'm so excited to have you on. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We talked about this a, a little bit, uh, but how how are you holding up? Is there any like particular book or snack or anything that's keeping you sane during our tumultuous uh, hellscape? Oh my goodness. Well, so my, my parents, bless them, are a delight. And of course, they're really worried about how me and my husband are holding up. So they dropped off some provisions from Costco a couple weeks ago. And it was like a 100 pound, like not a hundred pound, like a hundred tins of sardines, (laughs) so many sardines. So I started eating them and I got to be honest with you, they're actually pretty great. Like if you roast them with some like tomato and you add a little bit of basil to it and some toast, um, and I've been like turning it into stuff with scrambled eggs and kind of trying to pretend to myself that it's a really Mediterranean meal. And therefore I'm actually somewhere off the coast of Spain and I'm just eating them as my snack before I return to deep blue azure waters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and reading wise, I've been on a nonfiction kick lately. I really, really was obsessed with a book I finished recently called fallen glory by James Crawford. And it's about the, the life and death of history's greatest buildings. Oh, wow. Oh my gosh. It's fantastic the way that he leads you through history and starts you through things. I mean, you're, you're starting with ziggurats and like ancient Babylonian Sumerian cultures, which inspired, or, or, you know, had a lot of correlation to the Bible's tower of Babel, you know, like mm-hmm. I think actually the Uruk is even mentioned in the old Testament, which is really cool. And it brings you to stuff like the great silk tent that was in Kazakhstan, um, and held as like the seat of, the, I don't know, descendants of Genghis Khan and stuff. It just, it's really moving to think about the roots that we try to place down, knowing that something is going to outlive us by hundreds and thousands of years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a fantastic read. In particular, I wanted to talk to you today about your Arusha series, Mm -hmm. Uh, but I have been reading your book since I think the star touched queen Oh, when it first came out. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) And I met you at the Decatur Book Festival, I think, when the second book in that duology came out or something. Um, And so when they announced that you had a series with Required and Presents, I royally flipped out (laughs) and was like, where do I sign up? (laughs) I read Required and as a kid uh, and... I've always wanted to ask you, how how did that happen? How did you know that this new imprint was happening? And how did you uh, get a series with it right off the bat? Oh my gosh. Well, I actually heard about Rick Riordan Presents when I was at um, Dragon Con in Atlanta. And I haven't been able to go back to Dragon Con, unfortunately. Like, I loved it. It just always coincides with Decatur Book Festival. So this was you know, the stars truly arranging to make this happen. But I heard about... I just heard a rumor really that he was going to start an imprint and that he was looking for books that had the same mythological based adventure of Percy Jackson, but written from the viewpoint of authors who were of that cultural background. And I genuinely raced home and I emailed my agent and I was like, is this a thing? I need to know. I'm so excited. Please, 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 please. Can we find out? (laughs) (laughs) And she found out, she reached out to Disney and she's okay. Yes, it's going to be a real thing. This is really exciting. And from there, I 
I like wrote the first three chapters of Aru almost completely in a fugue state. I was like, this is the thing that I've been waiting for. This is what all my Sailor Moon fan fiction has led me to. Like, <laughs> I, I was made to do this. And so, so then I wrote it. And of course I had zero, I had zero expectation of anything happening ever. I was like, Rick Riordan truly is like his moniker is storyteller of the gods. He's not going to be messing around with like my <laughs> mere mortal of a self. Um, <laughs> And, and, you know, with publishing and submission, the submission process of writing a book and trying to get it published, I mean, it takes so much time. I didn't, we didn't sell the Star Touch Queen for like six to eight months of trying to get that book published. Um, And so I thought it was going to be the same amount of like waiting time, like six to eight months or something. But a week later, uh, we heard back that he had the book and I was like, what do you mean he has the book? Like, what is, what is he doing with it? Is he rolling it up into a <laughs> tiny cylinder and like whacking insects? Like, what's he doing? Um, but it turned out he was, he'd read it and he really loved it. And from there, the process just happened super quickly. And, uh, yeah, I found out on, on Halloween, I think of 2016, that Aru was going to be the first title in the Rick Riordan Presents line. Wow. That sounds like definitely like an amazing whirlwind. <laughs> it, was, it was madness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you mentioned that he was looking for writers who had a, a similar storytelling on uh, different cultures, mythology and folklore, but wanting authors from that cultural background. Did he talk to you about his mission for that and, and what was um, the thought process behind him wanting that for his new imprint? Well, I guess the thought process behind it, I mean, actually, we, have, we haven't even really talked about that. <laughs> I feel like, well, the first time I met him, I really, I, he was, he just like reminded me of my dad. So I just started, I just started trolling him immediately. And I don't know like why I did that, but I just, he makes people feel very like comfortable. So I was just like sitting in a lobby and we were just poking at plants and being like, how much do you want to bet it's real? No, that one's fake. That was definitely real. And then just sort of like doing that <laughs> to plants in a waiting room. But I mean, one thing about Rick that I really, really feel shines in a lot of his work and who he is, is he was a middle school history teacher for years. And then when Percy Jackson really took off, I mean, it was almost as if his classroom, okay, he wasn't teaching anymore, but his classroom then became his readers, you know, and it really became about that educational aspect. Um, and not just educating other people, but him being willing to be so educated himself, you know, like he, I get the sense that he really does do his homework. He talks to a ton of people. He tries to, to write something in an inclusive and, and sensitive way so that every reader gets to see themselves. And I, I really think that that's the heart of the imprint. What we, I think, are all trying to do is make sure that every kid can read these stories and find themselves celebrated. So when you went to write Aru, you said you just went home and you wrote the three chapters. Mm-hmm. How did you decide out of all the different kinds of of myths and legends that there are, um, with your experience, how did you decide what ones to focus on? Cause I imagine that must've felt like a little bit like quite the task, like, Oh, how, what, what ones am I going to draw from for these stories? Well, 
I always knew that the foundation myth for Aru was going to be based off the Mahabharata. And the Mahabharata is an ancient Sanskrit epic, and it focuses on the stories of these like five demigod brothers who each have different deities as their fathers and their struggle for power um, to find their, to, to like have a legitimate claim to a throne and also just like, you know, their own relationships with each other. But in so much of that epic, they are dealing with monstrous creatures. They have lots of interaction with gods, goddesses. And there's really a discussion about, you know, like, what's my duty in all this? Like, if you have to fight the people that you love, where do you stand? How do you make these decisions? That was always going to be a starting point. I was always so fascinated with the idea of demigods um, and particularly what it what it would look like considering that every demigod brother in that story had a different dad. Um, how do they feel about that? What was it really like if there's not that many other demigods in Hindu myths, at least that I, I remember, what was their relationship like with the people around them? And so for me, I just thought it would be so interesting to take that ancient story put it in a modern setting and flip the script. I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't have been women. The farther that you dig into Hindu mythology, it really does subscribe to the notion that gender is a construct. I mean, you have deities who can take both male and female forms. And so why can't a soul manifest instead in a young woman? Um, and that's what I wanted to play with. I really love that. There's a lot of fun with that as well. You play a lot with humor in the book, which I think is is really important for middle grade <laughs> in doing that. Um, but this is your first middle grade novel. So what was what was that like moving from young adult to middle grade? And what unique challenges did you find when you sat down to write the story? The truth is, I, I didn't realize how joyful it would be to write Aru. Um, I think middle grade is extraordinarily challenging. And the, the thing I think that makes it the most challenging uh, is the voice. There's brilliant authors who can't write middle grade or that kind of thing. But like, you know, that that meme of Steve Buscemi and he's got like a skateboard like tucked over his shoulder <laughs> and he's like, how are you doing, fellow kids? <laughs> there's, there's an aspect of cringe when you can tell that someone is talking down to an audience. And so for me, what made Aru easy was that I am always haunted by the person slash creature that I was in seventh grade. I have not moved away from <laughs> that person. I am always her. <laughs> I am always her. And so getting into the mindset for Aru was literally just me sitting alone in my office and thinking about all the people who wronged me, all the times I got dumped over AIM, and basically how desperately I just wanted someone to tell me I was exceptional. <laughs> Man, yeah. So that was sort of like therapeutic and exercising my middle school demons for me. Um, and so in that way, it was it was easy to tap into Aru's voice. But in the way that it was really challenging, again, I think that Aru is the kind of story where I cannot rush uh, the drafting process for it. Whereas when I'm playing with my young adult stories, which I, of course, I equally adore, I, I know that they can be truly god awful and that I can go back and fix it. But with Aru, if I've got the voice wrong at the beginning, if, I've, if I'm trying to rush a mindset and I'm not letting her think through things or I'm not letting myself think through something, the whole draft just feels like broken bones. 
And that's when it becomes an issue. That's where it becomes really hard for me. Yeah. Cause I mean, she, it definitely has that strong feel that, you know, when I read, you know, Rick Riordan's books, especially when he writes in first person, the voice is so strong. And I mean, on the audio, it's phenomenal because it's like this, you know, person performing a monologue for 10 hours or whatever it is. <laughs> but with Aru, I feel like it's very similar. And with Sanila Nankani, like, she is amazing. And I will forever fangirl about her to the end of my days. But I really appreciated the, the voice that you had in, in creating that. You mentioned that Getting the voice is extremely, you know, important for you. When you wrote the first book, was it difficult to find that groove for the first time? And how many drafts did that take? For Aru, uh, it took actually only three, three major revisions, which is unheard of for me. I'm the kind of person who has to rewrite something like 50,000 times. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I really think that because of the voice thing, it forced me to just go through it super, super slowly. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. This episode is also sponsored by A Farewell to Arms, Legs and Jockstraps by Diane Shaw. A Farewell to Arms, Legs and Jockstraps is an entertaining true life memoir of Diane Shaw, the first female sports journalist for a major national daily. Diane details her experiences breaking the glass ceiling in sports journalism and laying the path for today's female reporters. Diane is candid about the sexism and discrimination that she encountered as she wasn't one of the boys. Diane tells comedic, fascinating, and sometimes tragic stories about her adventures in journalism featuring some of the biggest names of the era. Right now, for a limited time, Red Lightning Books and Indiana University Press are offering an exclusive free chapter download for listeners of Reading Women. Visit iupress.org slash jockstraps hyphen reading to download a special sneak peek. A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps by Dan Shaw is available wherever books are sold. And all of the information for this title, including the link for the exclusive download, will be linked in our show notes. With Aru, one of the things I really love about it is that as she meets her other demigod sisters, as she meets more of the Pandavas, uh, she you know meets them all, and they're all and they're all girls, and they're all these girls with these different kinds of awkward middle school kind of situations, and they come together and they do great things. Uh, when you were like gender swapping the stories, what were some of the things that you were thinking about in writing these girls, and the fact that you know. One of the things I've always wished from Rick Riordan was that he would write more girls. And finally, that there are more from these imprints and from women writing themselves. What were some of the things uh, that you were thinking about as you were writing Aru and her sisters? Well, I felt like within the actual Mabot of the stories, every single one of those bonds of a brothers has a distinct trait to them. You know, for example, Beam is known for his incredible strength and that is Bryn's counterpart, you know, someone who also is known for their incredible strength. Beam loved to eat. Bryn is an incredible cook, you know, just that, those sort of things. I wanted to, to play with both what I knew were to be their strengths and what those weaknesses would look like, um, in a modern setting. And, especially in making them, in making them girls, I wanted to, 
celebrate female friendship. You know, I, I've talked about this so much, but I just really love Sailor Moon and coming home at the end of the school day and getting to watch Sailor Moon and watching her like go kick ass with her best friends and still be able to complain about homework and school and her crushes, but knowing that she has to like show up and like get her stuff together and go fight. I just really, I just really loved that message for, for myself and for other young readers that you can be more than one thing, that you can be strong in one aspect and you don't have to have it all figured out all the time. You, you know, half the battle really is just showing up to do the work. And I think if I had read these books as a middle grade, it would have meant a lot for me to see women, you know, young women doing things. Because at the time, I feel like there was like Tamara Pierce. Um, and that was that was generally, I think, about it when I was in middle school. And I felt like that definitely impacted the way that I saw myself and the way that, you know, the different jobs that you imagine yourself in. Because as a woman, if you don't see other women doing it, you're like, oh, can we do that? And I feel like with the Pandava sisters, they're all doing different things. So you have like so many different ways that you can be a young, like kick-ass woman, mm-hmm. you know, just saving the world over and over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's so many things expected of young women. And, you know, I was watching... For instance, uh, have you seen Never Have I Ever? It just came out on Netflix. I loved it. I really loved it. Um, it's a show, I think, executively produced by Mindy Kaling. And um, it's talking about a diasporic experience of a young South Asian girl growing up in California. She's super sassy, super funny, um, and has a really short temper and is like, going through you know traumas of her past and et cetera. And I was watching... I was reading some of the responses to it, uh, the sense of like, oh, they got this wrong and they did this and this is offensive and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, all of that, how you feel about something is always valid, you know, but the way that we analyze work by women of color creators and especially how we hold up these POC characters, I feel like people are so, so hard on them, especially when they're women, like, especially when you're a woman of color, you have to do everything right. And you have to do it faultlessly. You know, there's no, if you need to do something wrong, it really gets blown up. And I was thinking about that, that burden a lot when I was writing Aru that for her, I did want her just to be unapologetically herself and reading responses like Aru's not likable or she's too this, or she's too that. I mean, truthfully, I was an unlikable piece of shit in seventh grade. And like, I that's just what it was like. My prefrontal cortex, whatever, wasn't developed. How dare you demand perfection of me? I've just barely <laughs> figured it out. Um, and so I just really wanted to celebrate that. It's okay that you're awful. <laughs> yeah. No, I I was terrible as a middle schooler as well. <laughs> I was uh, I was known for correcting people um in class like I would correct the teacher in front of all the other students and stuff and I was right but my brother's like Kendra you can't do that it's like why I'm right (laughs) so yeah I I actually I really love Minnie Minnie is my is my favorite Uh, she's the first sister that Aru meets and she is like the daughter of, of death essentially and she is afraid of like all of these things and has like, you know, you could say she has like mild OCD and, and, and stuff. And I love that because 
I wore all black and was very anxious as a middle schooler. And I definitely related to that. Yeah. <laughs> it must be interesting hearing different people's favorite uh, Pandavas sister, especially as more and more, you know, they meet more and more each book in the series. Yeah, it, that's been, you know, the reader response has been the most rewarding thing. I mean, when I talk about the criticism that people get, yes, like obviously that's that just sort of comes with the territory of what you do. Um, but none of it matters when I get messages from kids who tell me that they've dressed up as Aru and the rest of the Pan- like Pandava gang for Halloween or the letters that they're sending me because those are those are the people that I'm trying to reach, right? And so they're they're just so funny. <laughs> crack me up. I love them. (laughs) It must be pretty great. And I know that a lot of people, when Percy Jackson first came out, they would fuss about how that Rick Riordan stayed in the middle school target audience. And so he would move to a new series, like when his characters aged out and he was very adamant, like, like middle school was his target audience and he was going to stay there with all of the glorious middle school humor and (laughs) everything in there. I feel like YA books in their target audience are like you're trying to reach someone at a different stage of life. And with middle school, like we talked about, it's a very awkward time mm-hmm. in most girls. Do you feel a bigger sense of pressure writing for girls at this age as opposed to writing for a YA audience, which is typically going to be a bit older? Yes, I do. It's a pressure that I've I've come to be very, very humbled by, you know, it's them. It's wonderful to see the work around you and to know that you, that you're contributing to, to, um, like a breakthrough in some ways. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's such an awkward thing to say, like, like, look at me, I am a trailblazer, but like, but when I, when I really, I had an interview a couple of when I can't remember when it was, but I was asked that. And I think like, maybe it's just because I'm a first generation American kid, but my automatic response when someone compliments me is to be like, ha that is a lie, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> You're wrong. I'm no, 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 no. And then just run in the opposite direction. Um, and I'm trying to like get really better about saying things like, thank you <laughs> or something else. But that, that question of pressure is, is something that it has been on my mind a lot because I'm not seeing nearly as many stories, uh, about Hindu mythology that I would like. They're, they're totally getting there. They're finding their space. You have people playing with it from all aspects of genre, like Sandhya Menon and Alicia, like I, I just all, Oh my God, I'm like blanking on the other person's name. She's a fabulous romance author. Amelie Howard, Amelie Howard. It's like called like the beast of best or something. It's great. Um, so you see so many more people entering the genres and, and really being trailblazers in their own right too. And so, so yeah, there's this, there's this pressure of, I'm trying to make people the greatest denominator of people happy. And I'm trying to like cast this net out as wide as I can and bring in all, bring in all the things that make sense to me, but hopefully in a way that doesn't feel like I'm you know, checking boxes off a list or, you know, almost like I never want these stories to feel like they're just lip service to, uh, to representation. And so it's a really hard balance <laughs> of trying to, trying to do it right and trying to be, uh, trying to be sensitive. And at the same time, remembering that 
that in trying to, to tell something honest, I have to be truthful about my own experiences. And that's sometimes an ugly process to put on the page. And it's been wonderful to see more stories for middle schoolers in particular by women of color for young girls of color so that they can see their own experiences. And I feel like, you know, doing this job, I, I love middle grade. It's it's something that I'm very passionate about. My friend Samaya, she and I like pass recommendations back and forth. And so um, this is one of them that I was like, hey, this is a nice action story because I feel like, you know, other stories that I've read, oh my word, like Amal Unbound or... Oh my gosh, so beautiful. Yes. And Hannah Khan's work, they're all very like contemporary and like realistic. And this is very much a different tone in that it's it's a bit lighter and it's action-y and you have these girls like using weapons and it's super cool. And so I feel like there's a lovely balance there as to, as well. So that there's so many different stories that can be told. And um, yeah, that's something that I really love about like where we're at in our, our current moment, I guess. Oh, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And you know, I, one thing that made me just so delighted was right around when Aru came out, um, another book called Kiran Mala and the Serpent Secret by Sayantani Dasgupta. And that really is celebrating like Bengali folklore also came out. And that book is fantastic too. And I just, it made me so happy that to see, to see like, to see both books do so well and to find their audiences and to help one another because it, it really flew in the face of this idea that a lot of POC creators are told, which is just that there's only room at the table for one of you. And to see all these incredible women and just wonderful writers coming up with their stories and celebrating the nuances of all of our experiences and all of our stories and proving essentially to an industry that has turned, turned the other cheek for so many years that there is room at the table for all of us and that there is a place for every single one of these stories. Now that makes me really happy. <laughs> yes, it's absolutely fabulous. And it, and it brings so much joy, not just to me, but to so many young girls in particular which, as well. And we'll be back with more from this episode of Reading Women after a word from our sponsor. The sponsor of this episode is the Skylight Digital Picture Frame. So are you looking for the perfect gift for your mom or loved one? You know, I'm not able to visit my parents or my in-laws as much as I would like to as they live in different states, uh, which is why I love the Skylight Picture Frame. It's touchscreen and you can email photos to it and they appear in seconds so uh, your loved one can see the photo in a matter of moments. You can also preload it so when you give the gift of a skylight digital picture frame, uh, it will come preloaded with all of the amazing photos that you know that she wants. Uh, in my case, that would be photos of Dylan uh, because we all know who the favorite is in our family. It is no surprise. So Skylight sent me a picture frame for this and I immediately had photos of Dylan on it and very quickly let's just be honest and so now I get to watch as Dylan's face scrolls across the digital picture frame and it brings me so much joy and I know that this is definitely something that my mom would love. Now as a special holiday offer you can get 10% off your purchase of a skylight frame when you go to skylightframe.com slash reading women and enter the code reading. Uh, that's right. You can get 10% off your purchase of a Skylight Frame. Just go to skylightframe.com slash readingwomen and enter the code READING. 
That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash reading. And thanks so much to The Skylight Frame for sponsoring this episode. So this is part of uh, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. We're doing a whole theme this month for it. And uh, Sachi, who's one of our co-hosts, like heads that up. And it's such a lovely month to celebrate so many different uh, voices uh, in literature of all different genres and age groups. And there's just so many amazing women doing their thing and creating fantastic literature. Uh, so who would you recommend uh, for our listeners to check out, whether that be YA or middle grade or just really anything that you really like that you would recommend for Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month? Oh, man. Uh, well, I <laughs> recommended Sayantani Dasgupta's Kiran Malan, The Serpent's Secret, which is fabulous, um, especially if you like the sassiness of Aru and a celebration of all these stories, but with a Bengali twist, definitely recommend. It's great. Um, I also recommend what I'm like staring at my, my bookshelf because of course, like I can't remember anything. Oh, Mirage by Samaya Dowd. Really beautiful and a super, super fun story. Um, the beautiful by my friend Renee Astier. And that is a story that's set in 19th century New Orleans. There's vampires but it's an inclusive vampire cast in a way that really celebrates how New Orleans was a melting pot at that time. Um, and just like the tension of just belonging to more than one, more than one culture with a supernatural backdrop, um, it's beautiful prose and it's just really romantic and great. I, and we'll hear for more, more books set in the South. Yeah. For more vampires. <laughs> yeah. I need them to, I need them to all come back. <laughs> so you mentioned as well that you are working on a young adult series. Uh, so what is ahead for you this year for your writing and uh, any exciting other things coming up for you? Oh boy. Well, I've got the sequel to the Gilded Wolves, which is called The Silvered Serpents. And that is coming out September 22nd. I'm really excited for people to get to that story. I, I hope they give it a chance, even if the Gilded Wolves wasn't quite their favorite, uh, because Silvered Serpents is really where my own authorial agenda is coming through. <laughs> <laughs> what starts off as a treasure hunt has very quickly been revealed as like my Faustian fan fiction. So I hope people <laughs> like it. And of course, there's two more books left in the Arusha series, which I'm super excited about. And my very first adult audio book, audio book novella, audio novella. I don't even know what to call it. I think is coming out this June. And that's the first time I've written something that was exclusively for audio. And I really learned a lot. Um, I had a great experience working with my editors at Audible. Um, and just, just, I don't even know how to wrap my brain around a completely different format of storytelling, the things that you leave out, how you rush the action faster, leaving out dialogue tags. Um, I just listened to narrator auditions and they're just, they're so good and I'm really, really hyped for it. And basically the premise of the story is, um, based off this Irish myth that has, it's like this couple falls in love and then she gets really sick and he has to give up his love for her. And so 
like that's the end of the story, of course, because it's an Irish fairy tale. Like, <laughs> you know, love for each other and continue on your separate ways, sadly, have a harp. Um, <laughs> kind of thing. But I wanted to start the story at the end. So it's a it's a tale about a, a couple a married couple who had once been in love but had to give up their love for each other. And now they're forced on an epic road trip. There's a talking cloak that thinks it's a horse. I had a lot of fun writing it. Um, and I hope <laughs> you guys like it too. Thank you so much, Roshni, for coming on the podcast and talking about middle grade and all sorts of fun things. Uh, <laughs> this was amazing. I hope I like in the middle, I was like, I'm rambling, but I'm trying to get to a smart point. I'm just going <laughs> to keep talking. <laughs> I think it worked out. I think it worked out. <laughs> I'd like to thank Roshni Chakshi for our fun and wonderful conversation about Arusha and the Tree of Wishes and the rest of the Pandava books which are out now from Rick Riordan Presents. You can find her on her website, RoshniChakshi.com, and on Twitter at Roshni underscore Chakshi, and on Instagram at Roshni Chakshi. And of course, all of her information will be linked in the show notes. I'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes interviews like this possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Woman. You can find me at KD Winchester. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.